Hello, Redeemer. This is Charlie King. We had some uh, technical difficulties when we um, tried to record this teaching Sunday. So Pastor Chase asked that I would uh, read the manuscript. This obviously won't include the Q&A, but it will give you an idea of, uh, of the teaching and, and what we went through. If you have any questions, please email us. So today, we're going to look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. This is the reading of God's word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, amen and amen. What we have before us today is no less than a description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the long-awaited return that each and every Christian eagerly anticipates. Now, Chase gave a fantastic teaching by the grace of God last week on our bridegroom returning for his bride and the forever wedding feast that will ensue. The verses we have today, as Joel Beakey points out, talk of another feast, the great supper of God, a feast for the birds to devour the flesh of the enemies of God. There can be no greater contrast. Our reading today is the ultimate answer to every imprecatory psalm, saying, Lord, curse your enemies and every cry from every martyr asking God how long. And what I want you to notice is this. Jesus Christ is the answer and at the center of both feasts. Now at our feast, he's the bridegroom and he's the lamb. At the great supper of God, he is the king riding the white horse with a mighty army following to bring wrath and righteous judgment. Therefore, what are we to make of this? Trust the Lord. Perseverance is the message here yet again. 
We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus who loves us so much that he bore the wrath of God in our stead and continues to sustain us every step of our pilgrimage home. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Psalm 55, 22. Endure this momentary struggle for Jesus is returning to save you and to judge his enemies. Now keep laser focused on that reality as we dive into our text. Let's look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now John, still trembling in awe from the previous vision, so full of a desire to worship that he bowed down to an angel, looks up, and he sees heaven open before him. Now, this is not a mere door opening like in chapter 4. Heaven itself opens. Now, I belabor this point because I want you to realize the grandeur of this moment. John, in exclamation, says, Behold. In other words, he's saying, Gaze upon who is coming. It is as if the angel in verse 10 is saying, Not me, John. Here, the Lord. Worship him. So what does John see? He sees a white horse with none other than the risen, victorious Lord Jesus riding upon it. It can be no one else. In ancient times, victorious emperors would return to their land on a white charger in triumph that victory is theirs. That's the illusion here. Jesus rides this white horse because he has won the battle. Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered Babylon. Christ has conquered the beast, false prophet in their armies. Christ has defeated the dragon. And on the last day, every knee will bow and proclaim Jesus is Lord. Next, we are told that he is called faithful and true. This is one of the best descriptions of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. When has he ever failed? Never. When has his promise has not been fulfilled? All of God's promises have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 He cannot fail because he's the definition of faithfulness. He's the standard of all truth. He is the word made flesh. Jesus is not simply true because he tells the truth. Jesus is true because he is the truth. Simon Kistemacher put it this way. Christ is faithful because he fulfills everything the scriptures reveal of and about him. And he is true because he personifies truth. It's John 14.10. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This reality makes our next statement a necessity where it says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. God is holy, y'all. And sin must be judged, and sinners must be judged. He now comes to make war on the rebellious, the dragon, the beast, and man. This is the severity of God. Joel Beakey wrote, We need to remind ourselves not only of the kindness of God, but also his severity. There is more to Jesus than his meekness and mildness. He exemplifies severity, holiness, justice, firmness, and strength. Remember, 
Not one sin that has ever been committed since Adam to the final trumpet will go unpunished. Either we will suffer the wrath that we deserve in hell, or those sins and what they deserve, Christ suffered for on the cross. There's no other option. So what we're reading here is the return of the king, the return of the creator to make his creation give an account. Next we have a description of Christ, our king. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We've seen Christ with eyes of flame before in chapter 1, verse 14. It's a direct quote from Daniel 10, 6. The meaning is as clear as his fiery eyes. Nothing escapes the sight of the Lord. His eyes aren't dim like an old man's. They are bright. They are fiery. He, the light shines. You can't escape him. There's no way to run. He sees. He knows. And he is returned to judge. Next we see on his head many diadems. Now, this diadem is the crown of a ruler. We've seen him with the crown, the Stephanos crown, the victory crown, but now we're told he has the kingly crown, a diadem. And notice too, a number is not given. We're told Christ wears many crowns. Now, this is to show that he's ruler of all. It's been well said that there's not a square inch of the universe in which Jesus Christ cannot utter the word, mine. And G.K. Beale reminds us here not to miss the contrast between Jesus and the beast and the dragon. Now the dragon had seven diadems and the beast had ten. But on Christ's head, his crowns cannot be counted. This is because he rules all. Next, something interesting is said that requires a bit of an Old Testament explanation. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, this phrase is not so much about knowledge as it is about authority. In the Old Testament, to know a name is to have authority over the one who carries the name. Adam named all the animals. Why? Because God gave him dominion over them in Genesis 2.19. In Genesis 32.24-29 is where we read Jacob who spent all night wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And as he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord changes Jacob's name to Israel. And then something interesting happens. Jacob asked the angel, would you tell me your name? And the angel says, why do you ask me my name? And he doesn't give him an answer. Now this little exchange is to show that it is God that raises up Israel and not Israel that raises up God. The meaning here in our text is simply this. No one has authority over Jesus. He is the King of Kings. Jesus is God. He has all power, all dominion, and we will never be God. We will know by His grace what He reveals to us through His Word. And he has every right to judge the way it's described here. And that's what he rides in to do. Which makes this verse flow seamlessly to the next in verse 13. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. I want to be clear on something here. The blood on this robe is not the blood shed at Calvary, as I've heard some people attempt to say. The context here is from the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, verse 10. The blood is that of God's enemies. And their blood is on his robe because he has vanquished them. He is victorious. God will judge every nation and every unrepentant sinner. This is both good and right and just. Now next, we see another contrast. In verse 12, we're told that he has a name that no one knows, but in verse 13, we are told his name. He is the Word of God. Now, I love this. This is John the Revelator, and he's referencing John the Gospel writer. John 1.1, John 1.14. Tom Schreiner kind of puts this beautifully. On the one hand, no one rules Jesus. No one controls him. No one knows his name. But on the other hand, he is revealed to us. He is the word of God made flesh because he is God's message to us. He is the revelation of God to us. Well put. We're reading the revelation of Jesus Christ to God. And the perfect revelation of God is Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. Next, look with me at verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. There are different takes on who the armies of heaven are. Some say they're angels. Some say they're saints and angels. And some say they're just saints. I lean on the latter two. It's probably saints and angels. I believe this to be saints and angels because verse 8 of chapter 19 and verse 14 here share too many similarities to make me think that the saints are not the ones mentioned here as well. In Matthew 12, verses 41 through 42, when it speaks of Nineveh and the queen of the south rising up at judgment day to condemn unbelievers, I think it's similar to what's happening here. G.K. Beale kind of put it better. He said, The saints of God take part in the final judgment only in that their testimony is the legal evidence condemning their oppressors. So believers are in this army as, a, as evidence against the persecution of the saints. But again, there's probably also angels in this army. Matthew twenty five thirty one, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious th- throne. So it's, it could be both. Notice that they also have pure white garments and white horses. I believe this to be another reference to the fact that we are in Christ. We wear his righteousness and we are more than conquerors, not by our strength, but in him. The focus is clearly Jesus Christ, which is why the verses continue in their description. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The images of power and might and judgment are again presented here. Now this sharp sword 
is not the sword of the Spirit mentioned in Ephesians 6. This isn't your word. This isn't the story of the gospel. That's your sword here on earth. This sword out of the mouth of the living God is the sword of righteous judgment. And it will strike down the nations. Isaiah 11.4 And rule them with a rod of iron. Yet another direct reference to Psalm 2, which we've seen before. And then once again, we see another quote from Isaiah 63, 2-6, where the winepress of his wrath will crush the enemies of God. And the point is simply this. You're not escaping God's judgment. All those outside of the blood of Jesus will be crushed until their blood flows like wine because of the blood that they spilled and because of their defiance against their creator. Our final description in verse 16 is, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see another name, not just the word of God, but written on his thigh, we see King of Kings. Now, the thigh is the traditional location of a sword, but more specifically, I believe it's also an indication of a solemn oath, like in Genesis, when they had to swear under Israel's thigh. The name King of Kings and Lord of Lords is in reference to Daniel 4.37. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar when he's turned into thinking like a wild beast because of his boastful arrogance about Babylon. When he's turned back and God grants him his mind to be returned, he praises the God of heaven. And that's kind of the reference being said here. There is only one king of kings. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not whoever's in charge of the most powerful country at the moment. It's not the Roman emperor. It's not the president of the United States. It's not the dictator of China. It's, it's no ruler on this earth. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is now and it always will be Jesus Christ. And one day he will return in full and the world will know this and every knee will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. This should comfort us deeply as we suffer persecution, that our king is on his throne. It's actually a beautiful bookend to what we saw earlier when he was called faithful and true because they almost mean the same thing. He is God. Jesus is the ruler of all things. And he's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. So be of good cheer. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Why? Because he is king. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. 4. Why? Because he is Lord. Evil will be destroyed. That sin that taunts you will end. And he that began a good work in you will finish it. Now our last verses are a description of that second feast. The results of the final battle of Armageddon that was mentioned in chapter 16 are found here. Look with me. At verse 17 through 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, 
in the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's, it's a staggering vision. John looks and sees another angel standing in the sun. Now this is similar to the angel in 18.1 who announced the fall of Babylon. Now this angel is announcing the fall of the beast and the false prophet. And he calls all the birds to come and, and eat the flesh of everyone who rose up against God at this last battle of Armageddon. Now G.K. Beale calls this a macabre parody of the invitation to the saints to gather for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we saw the saints being invited to a feast in eternity and in glory. We now see the birds invited to a feast on the flesh of the unbelievers. This whole scene is ripped straight from Ezekiel chapter 39 verses 17 through 20. Now in this instance though, this angel in the sun updates Ezekiel to show that Gog and Magog are the beast and the false prophet. So why allude to Ezekiel here? Why restate this third time Armageddon, which we saw in chapter 16, and it looked like everything was against Christ and the church, and there's no way the church could win. But here, we see the battle is over. And there's no even description of the battle. Why put this allusion to Ezekiel here? G.K. Beale explains why. The main point is this, that God wins. God will make known his holy name to both Israel and to Israel's oppressors. God will save Israel and judge her enemies. Remember, Armageddon appeared unwinnable. But to God, the victory is not only secure, but one with just a mere breath from his mouth, as described in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. So quick and sure is the battle, we only see here its aftermath. The beast and the false prophet, it says, are thrown alive where they will burn forever. Now we talked about the beast being symbolic of the corrupt world system and the false prophet, the corrupt false religions and philosophies. So what does this mean? It means on this great final day, all Satan's persecution of the church and his power to deceive the nations on earth will come to a forever end. William Hendrickson puts it this way, every influence of Satan, whether in the direction of persecution or of deception, goes with him to hell, never again to appear anywhere outside of hell. Praise the Lord. All glory and power be to his name. There's going to come a day when there is no more persecution of the church and there is no more deception. There's the light of Christ. 
But it goes on in verse 21, As for the rest, as for the ones who are marked by the beast and followed the dragon, they will be food for the birds. Now this is, this is Old Testament talk. To give someone's flesh to the birds expressed the idea of the total defeat and shameful subjection to the enemy. In other words, everything is gone. The reason why they're given over to the birds is because there's no one left to bury them. There's no one left to haul their spoils back. There's no one left. They are given to the birds in total annihilation, complete destruction. No more will the nations rage, as Psalms 2 says. It is finished. Joel Beakey said it poetically. Woe to us if we depend on the Goliaths and other mighty men of this world, but not on the king of kings. On the great day, we will be food for vultures. So complete is the victory by Jesus on his white horse. The birds engorged themselves on the flesh of the wicked. So what are we to make of all this? Armed with the truths of this text, how then should we live? We live in the footsteps of the Lamb in whom we have our comfort and trust. We live trusting in the Lord, knowing that he's the king of kings. And one day, he's coming back for us. And all these things that think they mean something, don't. We live encouraging one another in fellowship as the day draws near. We live in prayer to our holy God, praying with and for each other, loving the church and loving Jesus. And whatever comes your way in providence, know that the Lord holds it in his hand. Trust the Lord and live out Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Some people say things like, love wins. But that's not entirely accurate. Jesus wins. And all those who trust in Him, He saves Put your hope and faith there because he is coming. He is returning.